Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Today's episode is brought to you by Empower. It doesn't matter how much money you have, we all have money questions. Empower is here to answer those questions so you don't have to worry. Take control of your financial future with a real-time dashboard and real live conversations to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com. A lot of people spend a lot of money on things like skincare, fast fashion, and even surgery, all in the name of self-improvement. But as the price of perfection rises, when is it time to call it quits? I'm Rima Hreis, host of This Is Uncomfortable, a podcast from Marketplace. This season, we dig deep into the financial trappings of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Inside the Hive. This is your co-host, Joe Hagan. I have a very special guest today. One that takes us to the leading edge of what people want to know about in the next week, and that's Joe Biden with the State of the Union coming next Tuesday at 9 o'clock on everybody's TV and internet screens, and we're going to wonder, what is the State of the Union? And he's going to tell us, and we're going to assess Joe Biden and our nation. And that's why today I brought on Chris Whipple, documentary maker, New York Times bestselling author of The Fight of His Life Inside Joe Biden's White House. He's a contributor here at Vanity Fair. Welcome, Chris, to Inside the Hive. Hey, great to be with you. I'm pleased to have you. You have a a long uh, history of being on the inside of institutions like this one, but this is a really unique institution. I was thinking as I was reading the book, gosh, there's a lot in here that I didn't know about what was going on inside during the transition, for instance. We Vanity Fair published a piece of that, and it was sort of struck me that it's uh, something of a, um, it tells you a little bit about this White House, how little we knew about it. You know, the the Trump White House was like one that we read about every Friday on the cover of the New York Times, and Maggie Haberman generally published those. But, you know, this was this has been a different kind of White House. Yeah, you know, getting inside was the whole name of the game. I mean, that was the point. And this is really one of the most battened down Uh, leak-proof, discipline, on-script White Houses that I can remember. So it was all the more rewarding to be able to get in there and spend two years talking to almost everybody in Joe Biden's inner circle. Uh, It wasn't easy. But what I learned, among other things, is that there's a lot more drama behind closed doors than you might expect. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, when you go back through the litany of things that we have been through since he was elected, it is kind of, you marvel at it. I mean, there's the attempted coup, of course, January 6th. He had a pandemic that was still going on. Um, You know, later on, there's the pullout of Afghanistan. There's these huge bills in which he's basically fighting with his own party to get major bills passed. There's a Russian invasion of Ukraine. There's this midterm, you know, uh, but he came into this, people thought, you know, maybe he could be an FDR 
style figure, you know, a, yeah. a, a, yeah. a change. And he did succeed on so many levels, and yet his image remains somewhat muted, you know, um, and it's partly there's something muted about his profile in the public eye. Yeah, somebody said in, in one of the reviews of my book, somebody compared him to Bob Newhart yeah. without the sense of humor or self-effacing <laughs> uh, style, yeah. which I thought was pretty unfair. Yeah. Um, you know, Joe Biden is not going to electrify the populace. He's not Ronald Reagan. He's not JFK as a communicator. But this guy has been underestimated time and time and time again in his political career, Not, and most recently during the midterms, as we all know. But I really see my book and the Biden White House as a political thriller in three acts. The first act is the unbelievably fraught transition. And I report the untold story, which some of which was excerpted in Vanity Fair, of how the transition really came down to one guy yeah. in inside the Trump West Wing who, under Trump's nose and without his knowledge, kept the wheels of the transition turning. And it's just an unbelievable untold story until now. The second act of the book is the first year of the Biden presidency, which was really overshadowed by the Afghanistan, the disastrous uh, evacuation of Afghanistan, which set off this long slide in Joe Biden's approval ratings. And the third act, I really think, begins on February 24 to 2022, when Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine and Biden rose to meet that moment. Uh, he was uniquely qualified to rally NATO and the Western world against uh, that Russian tyrant uh, which he continues to do. And that, of course, was followed by a string of legislative successes that, that rival LBJ and then defying all the predictions in the midterms. So, you know, this is a guy you should not underestimate. Yeah. In many ways, you know, he was elected to not be like Trump. And part of that was the way he went about campaigning has also been similar to the way that he has run the White House, which he seems to be almost rope-a-doping. He's, he's pulling back and everybody's, you know, his polls go down. You think you're going to count him out. And then suddenly he pulls a victory uh, from the jaws of defeat. And and I'm, the most impressive for me, I know there were many, was that, you know, we just saw this GOP House melt down trying to elect a speaker. And somehow, though, on the left, Biden was able to bring the progressive wing of his party to the table to keep them coherent, especially as we came into the midterms. How did that happen? I mean, how did he, you know, we had, of course, on the, he had Manchin and Kristen Sinema on the one hand, but he was also stuck with the other side of a very loud and very demanding progressive wing. Well, I think the answer is a twist on the old expression. Um, the Republicans don't belong to any organized political party. Um, those are the Democrats. Yeah. They are now an organized, disciplined party. And you have to give a lot of credit, I think, to, to Biden, but also to, to Ron Klain, right. uh, who has all of the attributes of some of the great chiefs of staff, the Jim Bakers and the Leon Panettas. He had not only White House experience, 
had knowledge of Capitol Hill, uh, friendships and alliances there, political savvy, uh, and all the other things. But but right now, what's what we're focusing on here is his political savvy. He he, as you know, was a real kind of bridge to the progressives. Yes, he could whisper to them. He could keep them more or less, if not on board, prevent a rebellion, a mutiny. Uh, it didn't look pretty during that whole long, ugly period of months of sausage making with Build Back Better and the bipartisan infrastructure deal twisting in the wind. But in the end, you know, his kind of patient nose to the grindstone stewardship made made all the difference. Yeah. Well, there's a scene in your book uh, when Biden goes to meet with Pelosi and other members of Congress to talk about putting some of these bills to the vote. And Ron Colain sort of advises him last minute, no, we're not going to do this, pissing off Nancy Pelosi, by the way, and kind of a very uncertain decision, you know, but ended up being the right one. But I, I would say that, as you point out in the book also, that um, – you know, Ron Colain has a very long, close relationship with Joe Biden. That had to matter, too. No doubt about it. And uh, I think that what really matters about that, remember, this is a three decades long, more than three decades long, now 35 year long relationship. And what that gives Ron Klain, uh, what it gave him was the ability to tell Joe Biden what he didn't want to hear. That's not easy for yeah. a guy who's been around as long as Joe Biden has been. You've really got to have some credibility and and a real basis for, for doing that. So, for example, Klain was able in the walk up to the midterms, which everybody thought would be a disaster for Biden and the Democrats. Joe Biden wanted to go everywhere and talk about everything and brag about all the stuff he'd done. And... Klain sat him down and said, look, Mr. President, uh, you need to go to the following places and only to these places where you're going to do the most good. And you need to talk about uh, women's reproductive rights and the MAGA threat to democracy. Mm. And the rest is history. He followed, yeah. he followed that playbook. That's Well, that's interesting. We've talked about it on this podcast, too, because uh, the media – sort of poo-pooed that idea of, you know, overstating the threat to democracy, you know, that was when he did they his- They were mocked. They, they were, were mocked. mocked. Yeah. 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 And it turned out to be exactly right, along with the abortion issue and, and hitting on that. Um, yeah. And one of the things I have in my book, as, as you know, is that uh, at one sixteen a.m. in the wee hours after the election, um, I got an unsolicited email from Klain, and it, and it read as follows- Maybe we don't suck the way people thought. Yeah. Um, that was a real a moment of unscripted vindication. Hi, I'm Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired, and I'm co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab, along with Michael Calore. Each week on Gadget Lab, we tackle the biggest questions in the world of technology with reporters from inside the Wired newsroom. We cover everything from personal tech. Because asking people to put a computer on one of the most personal and sensitive parts of your body is just like, it's a big bet. Broader trends in Silicon Valley. 
there are just so many laid off workers out there that workers just don't have a lot of power. In the exciting and terrifying world of AI. It's inevitable that the internet is going to be filled with like AI generated nonsense. And so he just thinks he might as well make some money playing a small part in a thing that he sees as unstoppable. Wired's Gadget Lab is here to keep you informed and to keep it real. The entire point of the phone should be on some level to hate it. (laughs) (laughs) New episodes of Gadget Lab are available weekly wherever you get your podcasts. Have you heard about Mint Mobile? Do you know what it's all about? Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those savings right on to you. I've been using Mint Mobile for weeks and I've been impressed both by the quality and by the price. Mint Mobile offers premium wireless for 15 bucks a month. All plans come with unlimited talk and text and high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. You can choose from three, six, or 12-month plans and say goodbye to a monthly phone bill. So to get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com hive. That's mintmobile.com H-I-V-E. Cut your monthly wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash hive. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan. A hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc., copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. Now we're at a moment, and I was talking to my uh, colleague, uh, Chris Smith, about this uh, earlier today, where Biden has a new chief of staff, Jeff Zients. You know, without that deep personal relationship that Clayton had. And I wonder what you think that might mean for the White House going forward. Look, I think Ron Klain's shoes are going to be really tough to fill, but Zeitz is no slouch. I mean, he's got a lot going for him. He's a managerial genius. Uh, he's great at making government work. He, you know, ever since he fixed the Obamacare website, uh, way back when, uh, Biden has called him his BFD, his big blanking deal. Uh-huh. He's the he's the go-to guy when nobody can fix it. He has a world-class temperament, just like Klain, which is one of the most underrated attributes of the greats, the great chiefs, like Jim Baker and Leon Panetta. Um, he's got all of that. What he lacks is is Klain's political savvy and knowledge of Capitol Hill and those relationships and this long relationship with the boss. Uh, he has a good relationship with Biden, but but again, uh, you know, it, it we'll see whether he has the kind of 
relationship where he can sit down and second guess Joe Biden's political instincts. That's that's a tough one, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and <clears throat> there's been much speculation that Biden will therefore now rely more heavily on uh, Steve Reschetti and uh, Jen O'Malley Dillon uh, and Mike Donilon and Anita Dunn for political advice. But but I think it would be a real mistake to go that route because I think that yes, of course you can you can get their advice, but presidents learn often the hard way that you cannot govern effectively without empowering your chief of staff as first among equals. And Zions should really resist any attempt uh, by the president to to clip his wings in any way. I think I think that's history just shows that that's a mistake. Yeah. Well, he's he's got a reputation as a, as a fiscal hawk. You know, he comes from a, a more corporate background. You know, he was in the healthcare industry. He's been on the board of Facebook. Do you think that he'll craft a more moderate path for Biden than Ron did? I don't think he'll have much to do with that. I, I think that Biden is Biden. And I don't think anybody's going to change him at this point. Um, you know, I mean, you you can certainly give him great strategic advice, as Klain did in the walk up to the midterms. But you're not going to change Joe Biden's political stripes. Nobody is at this point. So, look, he he may not have, Zeitz may not have quite the same connections to the progressives that Klain did. But I don't think that means that Joe Biden is suddenly going to become a centrist Uh or more conservative. Well, this is the you know an issue that's coming up in the walk lead up to the debt uh, negotiation, and there's some question about whether Biden will you know uh, he likes to negotiate with the other side, right? Um, but the other side is splintered and and a little schizophrenic and nutty right now. So the question is whether uh, Zients will you know what the impulse will be there. You know, uh, between the two of them. Yeah, I think, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Klain said recently that we don't negotiate with hostage takers. Sorry. Say, yeah. we, we're not going to negotiate with the full faith and credit of the United States of America. Forget it. Yeah. And and that reminded me of, of I mean, frankly, I think that's the right approach to, uh, to a GOP house full of Star Wars bar characters who are uh, <clears throat> lighting their hair on fire on a daily basis. You know, I think you'd need to take a page from Bill Clinton and John Podesta back in the day when Newt Gingrich pursued his scorched earth political strategy, impeaching Clinton over Monica Lewinsky. Basically, Clinton ignored them and went about the business of governing. I think I think that's what you have to do. Yeah. Now, are we uh, – Ron Klain's – I don't know what his role – will be. Do you predict that he'll be running a re-election campaign on Joe Biden's behalf? I don't know. I don't know. I doubt it. I, I'd be surprised if he's running it. What I what I almost I can almost guarantee he will do is come back and play the part of Donald Trump or whoever the GOP nominee is. Nobody does it better than Klain. In a de- in a debate, in a mock debate, you mean? Yeah, yeah, in a mock debate, he'll he'll come back. He'll come back in that role for sure. And and I also I think he's look he's going to be. Joe Biden likes to pick up the phone and call his friends. Uh, Biden will be calling Klain, I'm sure, getting his advice on lots of stuff. 
So he'll be an informal advisor, I think. Yeah. My, uh, my colleague, Chris Smith, was asking me to ask you, and I'll ask you now, like, who else in the administration? And you mentioned a couple there, but, of, you know, in terms of influence with Biden, who, are, who we may not um, have considered? So other than Klain to this point, um, I would say Joe Biden's most influential advisor, uh, bar none, is Dr. Jill Biden. I mean, what she does, as Klain described it to me, what, what she does is she punctures the bubble around Joe Biden. She's out there all the time talking to regular people, and, and she'll just come back and say, hey, Joe, look, you know, here's what teachers are saying about this. Here's what somebody said about that. And he loves that. And he's tactile. He's instinctive. He likes to hear. But she she does that for him. And I think um, there's, you know, his sister Val, without a doubt, is is also right up there. But look, Rachetti and Donalon, Steve Rachetti, Mike Donalon. Um, Donalon, of course, is is the guy who He's the guy who really speaks for Biden, who can, if he, Biden's not around and you want to know what he's thinking, you just ask Donalon. So it's a little bit like the Klain the uh, regime was a little bit like um, Reagan's Troika, you know, with Jim Baker and Ed Meese and Mike Deaver. And with, so you put Mike Donalon would be Deaver, not in personality or Right. corruption right. Right. but but it, it the yeah. role yeah. uh and uh but clan was jim baker without a doubt yeah now the first the first among equals yeah regarding uh, jill biden what do you think the conversation is between she and the president right now about 2024 well she's the only person who could talk him out of it um he's he's running there's yeah. there's just almost no doubt in my mind and I think that um, I haven't heard anybody suggest that that Jill Biden is is against it. And if if she is, then he may not go there. But I, I don't think there's any evidence that she is. And so I think they're talking about it. Um, but I suspect she's saying that if you feel you want to do it, you should go for it, is my guess. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's an interesting um, anecdote in your book near the beginning, and it's about this meeting of all the former chiefs of staff of different administrations over the years get together with the incoming chief of staff to advise them, Yeah. right? And uh, so this happened for Ron Klain at the opening. And one of the former chiefs of staff sort of uh, wonders – or, or advises uh, uh, Ron Klain about um, handling, you know, the rigors of the presidency at Biden's age and is saying, you know, you really need to kind of uh, schedule him correctly so that he gets a lot of sleep, for instance, right? Yeah, it was Jim Jim Jones, who was LBJ's uh, White House chief of staff, believe it or not, at the age of 28 in 1968. He said he was 28. He thought he, he felt like he was 50 doing the job. <laughs> Um, I'm old enough to remember LBJ. I was I was young, and I and I thought he looked like he was 80 years old. He was 60 
when he left office. And he died at the age of 64. And yet Jones made sure that LBJ got a nap every afternoon. He, he was careful to make sure that he got his rest he, so, that he could, so that he could do the job. And in the end, it still consumed LBJ. It devoured yeah. him. It drove him from office. Uh, Vietnam, among other, other huge issues he was grappling with. So Jones, in this phone call, which had not been reported before, it's in the book, 19 out of 22 living chiefs were on the call. Jones opened as the senior guy, 82 years old. And he said, look, Ron, I look at this guy, I recognize myself. You know, yeah. I'm, I stumble going up the steps, yeah. up the stairs. You've got to watch this guy. It was, it was really a remarkable moment. Klain took it all in and I suspect kind of shrugged it off because he knows what kind of energy and stamina Biden has. But if I were Jeff Zients, I would take this very, very seriously. Um, one of his most important jobs is going to be making sure that only the people who really need to see Joe Biden get to see him. Uh, he's an octogenarian. He's running for re-election. Zients has got to make sure that he's rested enough to do it. Yeah. And what accommodations did Ron Klain and the staff at the in the White House make for his age? I mean, were there sort of, you know, guardrails put in thinking about this? I don't think there were in his first term. I mean, first two years. I'm not aware of anything that Klain or the staff did to, to uh, you know, I, I, I think they probably figured that's that's Dr. Jill's job. You know, you know, let her let her handle that. I, I mean, I'm speculating now because I don't know. But but I spent two years talking to Ron Klain regularly, and I, I never heard him talk about special accommodations for, for Biden's age. Did you, when you interviewed him, was it in person? No. I, you know, I was, I was not granted a, an in-person interview with the president, but I was offered written answers to my written questions. Yeah. And obviously that changes the whole nature of the beast. Sure. But, but I, I got some really revealing answers from him, I think. And uh, one of them involved, I asked him about his worst day and about his best day. Yeah. And his worst day was was the the day that 13 service members were killed in that horrific suicide bombing in Kabul. Yeah. I was personally wrenching and, and I thought it was a really interesting revealing answer from Biden. Um I could tell you about his best day but I'm not going to give you a spoiler here. I'm not going to give the uh, <laughs> listeners a, a spoiler. <laughs> And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There's five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts. 
This episode is brought to you by Empower. Can you retire early? Will there be enough money to leave an inheritance? Do you have savings for life's important milestones? If you have money questions, Empower has answers so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at Empower.com. I just want to stay on this for a moment because it's a thing that's going to come up again and again is this age thing. But just, you know, your personal assessment based on talking to people and and probably getting a sense of the anxieties or concerns that others might have had inside the White House, if any. But like, because you mentioned it in the book, you're pretty transparent about, hey, this is like, you know, he he he's he walks with a certain extra care <laughs> to, you know so I mean uh, how, how concerned um, you know should we on the outside be thinking about him running I mean obviously people in the Democratic Party are even worried well I can tell you this that you know when you've been a journalist as long as I have I, I think you get a sense of when people are trying to spin you uh, or uh, <clears throat> hide something and in two years of talking to all of his inner circle I never detected any concern on their part about Biden's mental acuity. Uh, yeah, he walks like around like a zombie. You know, he walks like an 80-year-old man. Yeah. But that doesn't reflect much on his ability to do the job, I don't think. Um, the kinds of stories you hear from the people around Biden are, are stories like this. I mean, Bruce Reed, the Deputy White House Chief of Staff, told me about a trip to Europe where they had four summits back to back to back to back. They, they dragged themselves, all these staffers, way younger than Biden, dragged themselves back on Air Force One, exhausted, bone tight, trying to get some sleep, trying to, and everybody was wiped out except Joe Biden who comes back to the senior staff cabin and walks in and on the red, red eye flight back to Washington, six hours, tells stories for six hours. And while they, while they were prying their eyelids open, trying to be polite and listen to the boss, yeah. um, Bruce Reed will say, look, you know, it's, it's tough keeping, keeping up with this guy. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because it, it goes back to this thing I mentioned at the beginning, which is like um, there's the Joe Biden image and the counting him out and, you know, people a little concerned, right, versus yeah. what he achieves and what he's been able to end up doing, right? Which Look, I'm, yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's just, it's an, I, I don't mean to dismiss it. I don't want people to think that uh, Whipple is buying this uh, whole spin about how Biden is, you know, younger than he really is. I think it's an absolutely legitimate issue. And I think you have to think about, okay, what would happen if, if, if he, if he does keel over and and suddenly you've got Kamala Harris in in the in the seat, um, that's a legitimate concern. But um, a friend of mine, Jack Watson, who was Jimmy Carter's White House chief of staff, frames it kind of nicely. I think he says, "Look, aging is a really individual thing. How many Supreme Court justices?" from John Marshall to Felix Frankfurter to Ruth Bader Ginsburg have been firing on every cylinder well into their 80s. Picasso had his most productive period before he died at 91. Warren Buffett's doing just fine in his 90s. 
Um, it's a very individual thing. And and Watson's attitude is, uh, OK, so let the voters decide. Yeah, well, that, and, and, and they will at some point. Um, and the alternative, of course, being like, you know, a Senator Feinstein, who's, you know, people are concerned and now there's going to be an election in California. We don't know where it will go with with uh, with Joe Biden, but it's a wild card. Right. And it's one that will be exploited uh, by the right when they run. If they run somebody like DeSantis, who's younger and has got tons of energy, the contrast will be uh, complicated, to say the least. Yeah, it didn't help Walter Mondale too much, but but sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's Mondale right. There's the Reagan. Reagan. And you, you refer to the, the famous Reagan line uh, in the debate. Yeah. I mean, Reagan basically said, um, you know, I am not going to exploit for political purposes the youth and inexperience of my opponent. That's right. And yes. it, which uh, which cracked up Mondale along with the entire crowd. And that that was it. That ended the age issue for Reagan, more or less. Yeah. Well, if there's one thing that I think could age Biden, it's the next two years of investigations into Hunter Biden and the classified documents case and a generally ramped up right wing slime machine with an empowered GOP House. How do you think he's going to deal with that? Well, I again, I think I mentioned earlier that he should take a page from the Bill Clinton playbook. And, and all he has to do is walk down the hall and, and talk to John Podesta, uh, who's there, as you know, implementing a lot of the uh, climate stuff. Yep. And there, there are a whole bunch of White House chiefs, former chiefs uh, working for Biden, including Dennis McDonough. So... I think that's the playbook. You 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 basically you focus on governing, and you let them you you let them lose their minds. That's maybe simplistic, but I think that's the basic approach. But I I did say in a New York Times op-ed just a few days ago, talking about the challenges ahead for Biden that he's been up against Vladimir Putin and COVID and a crippled economy and all of this other stuff, and now comes the hard part. Uh, the, ne- yeah. the next two years, I agree with you. He's got to implement all the stuff that was passed in the first two years. He's got to handle the classified documents thing and contain that. He's got to deal with the GOP House. He's got to deal with. He's got to avoid a recession and tame inflation. He's got to keep NATO united. He's got to. He's got to still confront the the, the lasting power of of MAGA and Trumpism, which is not going away. So yeah. It's it's it could age him. Yeah. Well, I would say among all of those things you listed, that the one that I think he would probably be most vulnerable to is, and not in terms of the legal part of it, but just the fact of his son being in the you know suddenly being flapping in the wind, right? Legally and in the media, it could be you know take a toll on not just him but his you know wife. He's he's handled it. Joe Biden has. He's handled it pretty well um, in the past. And, you know, do we really think, you know, that there's any there there with with Hunter Biden? Um, Hunter Biden's had a, you know, tragic, really difficult life. But, you know, I, the, the entire press corps has been digging into this for years now. And if there were any real connection to Joe Biden, I think we'd know about it by now. Yeah, that's yeah. Just, that's just my gut feeling. Yeah, yeah. Well, we don't know exactly what's going to happen, uh, which narratives are going to kind of be driving our next many, many news cycles. But last year, 
around this time, Biden came uh, into Congress and he said the state of the union is strong, right? And he also said a couple lines later that we'll be stronger a year from now than we are today. Without a doubt. I mean, again, I, I, I talk, this is the third act of the political thriller I was talking about, um, which began with Putin's invasion of uh, Ukraine. And I think that was the turning point of the Biden presidency. Um, and you look at his record since then, uh, it's, it's pretty extraordinary. Uh, I mean, it's now with the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, he's really got a legislative record that rivals LBJ's. Um, the economy's coming back, inflation is coming down. There's an awful lot of good stuff, but but look, I mean, there are terrible problems as well with, with gun violence and the border and the risk of NATO splintering, that, that unity coming apart. And, uh, you know, just a general sense that we're not out of the woods from COVID by any means. And, and, and obviously the American public doesn't think that things are going in the right direction. He's got, he's got huge challenges. Do you think he's going to announce that the pandemic is over? No, I don't think so. Um, you know, the state of emergency, if that's the phrase, uh, he's maybe maybe he'll announce, maybe he'll say something to that effect. But I think he learned the lesson from the July 4th weekend of 2021 when he seemed to prematurely declare victory over COVID. And he's not going to make that mistake again. Yeah. So he will come out next week, next Tuesday, and he's going to say the state of our union is... Improving, getting better. I don't know. You know, I, that's why they pay John Meacham and uh, Mike <laughs> Donnell on the big bucks and not me. They're going to fill uh, in those blanks. They, they'll fill in that blank, I think. But um, yeah, look, I think it's, it's, it's going to be an important speech. Uh, and, and, and I think the challenge for Meacham and Donnellan is going to be very much like Ron Klain's challenge before the midterms. It, it's going to say, Mr. President, no. You, you don't want to brag about every single thing. Yeah. Uh, Biden's going to want to. He's going to want to do the entire laundry list of achievements. And I think the challenge will be keeping it short. Right. Editing Joe. Yeah. Um, well, that's interesting. I mean, it's funny because a year ago, I remember one of the conversations was uh, in advance of the State of the Union is that be careful about too much, uh, you know, uh, overstating uh, your victories at a time when people may not be feeling economic happiness, even if numbers say one thing, right? Um, now, I was curious if after doing so well in the midterms or, you know, whether or not, uh, you know, he's that'll be an interesting to see how much he allows himself to feel, uh, you know, a sense of having accomplished all of these things. And uh, you're right. I mean, it's like an interesting balancing act. Yeah, it's a delicate balancing act, and I think um, you know he's going to want to he's going to want to crow about as understandably about a uh, remarkable legislative record and more jobs created than any other president in history at this stage, and all of the other things we're talking about. But it would be a mistake to do too much of that and and not be and not be real. I mean, that's what. Biden is supposed to be really good at uh, is that kind of kitchen table stuff and just saying, look, I, I think the Tony has to strike is things are improving a lot 
but I know you don't really feel it yet. You know, it's a, it, he's got to strike that kind of balance. Here's my last question for you. In the book, you say, well, at the outset of his presidency, there was an opportunity to be an FDR, right? And, um, and of course, FDR was an important figure in Biden's own cosmology as a Democrat, right? And influenced with the way he sees the world. Um, but instead, you say maybe he's more like a Winston Churchill. What, do, what did you mean by that? Well, I don't want to over overdraw that analogy because you think of how dissimilar they are in many ways. So, you know, Churchill was this Tory conservative uh, with a silver tongue, and Joe Biden is this lunch bucket Democrat uh, who mangles his words. So you can you can over. But what I meant was, you think about think about the parallels. I mean, Winston Churchill had spent his entire career in Parliament. Uh, without ever grasping the brass ring. He'd been around for decades and grown old and bald and gray, uh, as William Manchester, his biographer, described him. Um, And then until he was summoned at the right moment uh, when Hitler tried to conquer Britain. Um, This may sound melodramatic, but that sounds an awful lot like Joe Biden, who spent take away parliament, and, and he could have been describing Biden. He'd been around and he was mocked for his long-winded uh, oratory, uh, just like Churchill. He was considered a has-been, washed up, uh, until he was summoned to uh, replace an authoritarian president who didn't want to give up power. Um, and then along came a Russian tyrant invading a democracy in the heart of Europe, and Biden was was better prepared than anybody to deal with that. So everybody compares Zelensky to Churchill, but I th- I think you could say that Biden may be more like him than uh, than not. Yeah, and I, I, I suppose when we say that we mean in the long in the long arc of history, uh, perhaps how he'd be looked back on, because of course today people are not looking at him like that. Um, well, and 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 he may he, he he might not love the analogy either, uh, <laughs> since Churchill won the battle for a democracy for the soul of his nation and then got booted out of office. So uh, you know, Biden wouldn't probably enjoy that uh, parallel. Yeah, yeah. One last thing I would like to say, which is that you know when you talk about the soul of the nation expression uh, that Biden originally campaigned on. And it was, of course, about Charlottesville and the, you know, these kind of neo-Nazis and this sense that we were divided and that in our midst was this white supremacy on the, on the you know, rising up uh, out of the darkness here in America. And, you know, we, this, these were some of the things that he needed to correct, to, to write. And although the MAGA part of the Republican Party remains alive and that there are these forces in our nation— I would say, you know, all things being equal, I think that Joe Biden did diffuse some of that. Well, well, maybe, but I think I know that the thing, the one thing that surprised Joe Biden more than anything else during his presidency was the lasting power of Trumpism, of MAGA. He thought it would be in the rearview mirror long before now. 
he thought he he knows he won he won by seven million votes. He thought he had a mandate and that this would pass. And it shocked him. Still does that it's still out there and it's as powerful as it is. I think they're planning to run against Trump uh, because you you have to. You can't you can't rule it out. Um, he's got, I think, a better chance at the GOP nomination than most people think. And I think the Biden White House thinks so, too. And I think they believe that democracy is very much on the ballot in 2024. Wow. Well, that's interesting. And that sort of uh, to think that that's what they're thinking is uh, informative. So um, I'm glad to know it. And I'll, we'll be keeping a close eye on on, of course, Trump, who, you know, he's at the low ebb of his of his uh, campaign. But as we know, uh, anything can happen. He's dangerous, but he's still dangerous. Yes. Uh, well, I'm glad uh, glad to know that. It's good to keep in mind. And um, Chris Whipple, thank you for coming on Inside the Hive. It's been great. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks a lot for having me. Three, two, one. Political Breakdown is a daily politics podcast from KQED in San Francisco that goes deep into the issues you care about. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Look, 2024 is going to get weird. Who decides when there's been an insurrection or not? We're still in the innovation phase of AI. And that is where you see that they're not actually being equitable and trying to build a utopia where we can all use drugs happily together. <laughs> but whatever happens this election year, the KQED politics team is in this with you. Political Breakdown. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode was brought to you by Empower. Are you ready for life's important milestones? What will your retirement look like? Do you know your net worth? Empower can help answer your money questions so you don't have to worry. With a real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you can get clarity on your real-life financial goals. Join 18 million Americans and take control of your financial future to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com.